and covenants. And I want to start out with this uh, question. Did you ever have a rabbit's foot keychain? Did, did you, anybody ever have one? Okay, come on, there's probably more than had. Okay, there we go. So you're like, all right, I did. I had one. I had one when I was a kid um, growing up. I don't know why I had one. I don't know if somebody gave it to me or I found it somewhere. I just thought it was cool. Um, but I was thinking back on, on that, that rabbit's foot thing. But By the way, I, I'm not going to pick on you anymore. Does anybody even still have one of those? Does anybody have Do you like, you like got one? No? Okay. I, I actually looked it up. Um, I, I thought, I was thinking, because we got back late Friday, I thought, I wonder if I can find one in El Dorado. Uh, and I didn't go looking all over town. But I, I noticed, if you're interested, um, Walmart has them online. You can still buy them, uh, get them. And they come in a variety of colors now, uh, just like rabbits. Um, anyway, I, I, I was thinking about that, and I was like, the rabbit's foot thing is just kind of weird. And, and really, it's, uh, it's gross. It's gross. Carrying around a, a, a rabbit's foot in your in your pocket or in your purse, it's, it's kind of morbid um, Like when you, when you think about it. Now, I, I've, I've hunted before. You know, I've gone out and, and shoot Bambi. Oh, that's fine. That's cool. Um, and, and like, if you do that, like, great. I'm, I'm happy for you. But I don't know any, like, deer hunter, like, big into hunting who cuts the ear off a deer and sticks it in his pocket. And goes, this is good luck. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's just a weird kind of thing. And, and it's kind of crazy that, that the thought of the, like, how did that even happen? How did we get to that point? And how were millions of people convinced that having a rabbit's foot on your person was somehow a, a lucky thing? That like chopping off the foot of this furry, fluffy, little sweet creature somehow brought you good luck. I mean, I would think it would be the opposite of that. Like God's like, hey, if you go around cutting the feet off of beautiful little fluffy, sweet creatures, that should be bad luck, right? And, and, and yet it's like this good luck thing and it's weird. Now, I, I get the desire for, for good luck. Like I know life is tough and it's difficult and, and we want to have like good luck in our lives. And so there's a lot of things that we that we do to try and get good luck. Like it's this elusive thing. We want it. We've got to try and find it. And so we do a lot of things. I made a list of some of the things we do to try and gain or curry good luck or favor in, in our lives. So um, maybe you open fortune cookies at a Chinese restaurant when you go. You got to open that fortune cookie to see what it says. Like maybe it's Maybe it's good. I, so my daughter Tristan has this idea. I really think we should do it sometime. We're going to open up a fortune cookie company. We're going to start a fortune cookie. We're going to make our own fortune cookies. But the fortunes inside the cookie are going to be like totally random. Like you're going to shower tonight. <laughs> Maybe you should take a bath. I don't know. Probably most of them will have to do with hygiene. I don't know. Just easy to come up with. Um, brush your teeth. Uh, the baby's crying. I don't know. Just like weird things like that we'll come up with. Um, because people like pay attention to those. I think, I think it's a million dollar idea. We should probably do that. Um, we, we, do, we do carry rabbits. Like maybe not as much today. But back in the day a lot of people carried rabbit's foot. Um, uh, here's another one that we do. And maybe you've got this. Um, 
You know, there are like in 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 uh, in, in other kind of church history and settings, there's like have a bunch of people who are supposed to bring you favor in certain areas of your life. And, and so maybe you've had or somebody has given you uh, a, a little pin or something and it's of a person and you stick it to the visor in your car and then having that patron saint of tires or whatever it is, like helps you travel, like gives you travel blessings and whatever so you're not going to have a wreck. And maybe you put one of those in your car so that when you drive around you'll have good luck. It's, it's customary. If you uh, ride motorcycles, it's customary for somebody to give you a bell that then goes on your bike and then supposedly the idea is that the bell rings while you ride down the road and it keeps the little road demons away. And so you got to have this little bell. It's probably, it's probably the most feminine thing about riding a motorcycle. <laughs> Just have a little ding ling ling on your motorcycle you're driving down the road. Um, and I guess that's why there's loud pipes so that you don't hear the bell and somebody think you're a sissy. I don't know. Um, we, we, we pick four-leaf clover. Anybody ever go out to the clover patches in the front yard and pick up a four-leaf clover? And that was supposed to be good luck and you put it in a book or whatever, smash it. We check horoscopes. We, we get a reading. Or, or how about this one? If you're into sports, you've probably done this before. You wear the, like, this is gross, but you wear the same socks or the same underwear for like weeks or months or maybe years. <laughs> Just to try and help your team win. We're always looking for lucky charms. See what I did there? To help us get a, get a, get a hand up somewhere in, in, in whatever it is we're doing. We even turn spiritual trinkets into lucky charms. And we think like having the family Bible open up on the mantle will, will somehow gain us God's favor. Like God's looking down and, and he's like, oh look, that family has a Bible open on the mantle and so nothing bad is going to happen to them. Even though it's covered in like a half inch of dust, right? Nobody's read it for 20 years. Like God's like, oh, they got a Bible. It's open. Uh, let's bless them. Does any of that stuff really work though? And, and I was thinking, like, how did even the rabbit's foot thing come about? And so I have a scenario. I don't know if it's real or not, but it's just as good as anybody else's idea. And so I'm going to share it with you. I think there was some peasant guy back in the Middle Ages, and um, they were hungry, no, hadn't eaten in days. And he finally catches a rabbit in some little snare that he's made, right? If you watch those old middle age shows, they were always getting the little strings out and hooking it to the branch. I've never caught anything doing that. But anyway, they catch stuff. And so he got this rabbit and he brought it home and everybody's standing around him and they're all excited because they get to eat meat for the first time in days. And so he's cutting up the rabbit and he chops the foot off because everybody knows the foot's no good, right? Don't eat the foot. So he cuts the foot off and he's getting ready to throw it in the trash pile. And just as he does, he drops the knife. And the knife falls and it goes right between his toes and doesn't nick him at all. And he looks in his hand and there's a rabbit's foot. And he goes, this must be lucky. So he sticks that stinky, gross, you know, smelly rabbit's foot in his pocket. And he pulls the knife out and he says, I will never be without my lucky rabbit's foot again. 
So he walks around, and every time people see him coming, they smell, what is that? And he goes, oh, that's my lucky rabbit's foot. And it's like rotting, and the flesh is falling off, and it's disgusting. I hope your children are in here. And it's just melting all over, and it's gross. And he goes, this is my lucky rabbit's foot. And maybe that's how the rabbit's foot got to be lucky. I don't know. Today, we're going to continue our study in First. Samuel, the, the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, right, which is a historical look or historical record at 115 years of Israel's history when they transitioned from a nation led by God through judges to a nation who's ruled by a king. Now, during this time period, Israel had really lost it. It had been some time since a judge had called Israel to repentance. And, and while at times they still experienced the blessings of God, they believed they were entitled to God's provision and His protection no matter what they did. And so they turned to, to worship false gods, the, the idols and the gods of the nations around them. Even their spiritual leaders had abandoned God's rules and laws, and they believed they should re receive God's blessing regardless of their ability to stay within the boundaries of his laws. And I think there are a lot of similarities between the nation of Israel at that time and our own nation today. Like Israel, America was founded as a nation under God. But we have used that statement to try and force God to bless us even while we refuse to obey him. And instead of turning to God for help in our trouble, we turn to our spiritual objects, our traditions, our history, when we should be turning to God in obedience. And what we find over and over and over again, just like the Israelites did, is that God's presence in our lives can't be faked. God's presence in our lives can't be fake. And so if you get nothing else out of this morning's message, I hope that you take that because that will help you through your life. As you think about objects that you're trying to get to gain God's favor, just remember that God's presence in your life can't be faked. Two weeks ago, we started this series with this statement, every plan of God begins with a person. And, and then Andy and I uh, we decided that we needed to make a trip to Idaho, right? My parents were moving out of house they'd been in into my sister's home. And, um, you know, we hadn't been there in about a year. My brother passed away early last year. And so we were out there for that and haven't seen him for a while. And, and we just felt like this would be a good time for us to go with spring break last week and, and, uh, and spend some time with them, help them get moved in, get their uh, new place set up. They're getting older and it's more difficult to do that. And, and so we'd get to see them maybe for a little bit. Um, and while we were there, that big storm came through. And so the roads were closed, and we had to drive way down south of Salt Lake City and down and came through uh, southern Colorado to get back here um, in time for uh, this morning because I just couldn't stand to be away from you a another week. And uh, even though I tried to get Melody to preach again um, this morning, she said no. So I, I don't think she knew she was going to be like... Like she's probably preached twice as much as she thought she was going to in the first uh, few months of church. Uh, is that accurate? Uh, probably, yeah. 
Um, but I, 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 I want to say thank you publicly to her because I've heard nothing but good things uh, about what she shared uh, last week in her message. And I'm, I'm so thankful that we have people here at Real Life like Melody and so many others last week who, who stepped up and who stepped in to make sure that you got to hear from God uh, last Sunday when Andy and I were gone. And so thank you to everybody who, who, uh, who stepped up last week. Today, we're going to be back in 1 Samuel, and and, in the first week, we looked like specifically at Samuel and kind of how he came into being. This morning, we're going to take a step back from that, and we're going to kind of get a bird's eye view of the nation of Israel through a specific incident that highlights their spiritual condition at this time in their history. And, and just for some perspective, it's, it's been a few years since we got introduced to Samuel. Remember, in the first week that we talked about, we saw uh, Hannah, Samuel's mom, was praying at the, at the tabernacle in Shiloh. She was barren, and she was asking God to give her a child. And, and she said, if you give me a child, then I'll commit him to you and to be raised in, uh, in your presence. And so that happened, and... Um, and, and Samuel was, was dropped off at the tabernacle, essentially at about three years old. And, and I'm going to guess it's probably been about 13 or 15 years, something like that, since that happened. So Samuel is a, a, a teenager, a, 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 somewhere around that. He's probably not 20 yet. He's probably in that, in that uh, age range there, just under 20 but he's been trained and raised by the priest Eli for, for uh, quite a number of years now. In the next few chapters of the story, the current priests who have turned away from God are going to die, and Samuel's going to become the last judge of Israel and her first prophet. And it all begins when Israel decides to pick a fight with their fiercest enemies, the Philistines. So Philistines live just south of the nation of Israel. And over the years of Israel's existence, they battled the Philistines back and forth. And they'd trade victories back and forth. And, and I was thinking, like, what could be a good example of this relationship between the Israelites and the Philistines? And, and I came up with, with one. I thought, you know, this is kind of like the battle between the Celtics and the Lakers back in the late 80s, early 90s, in the good days of basketball, right? And so they were battling all the time. It was this big deal, back and forth. And then I got to thinking, we got a lot of people at Real Life who weren't alive in the late 80s and early 90s. And so maybe they're not going to get that example of the Celtics and the Lakers. So I, I came up with another example. Maybe you'll recognize this to get the, the conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines. Just think of Kanye and Taylor Swift. Uh, and then you'll have a modern day view of this back and forth thing that's going on between the two nations. So we're going to be in first. Samuel this morning, and we're going to be in chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 2. You can follow along on your, uh, on your phone or your tablet or uh, your paper Bible, or you can just follow along on the screen. Here's what it says. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? 
Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. And so the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. And hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. And they said, a God has come into camp. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And so here was their answer. Be strong, Philistines. Be men. I like that uh, statement. Be men. Or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought. And the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of, the, of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Israel picked a fight, and they got beat. 4,000 of them died in that initial conflict. And that was not supposed to happen, right? Israel is, is God's people. They're God's nation. God was supposed to protect them and supposed to drive out other nations before them. They weren't the ones who got defeated. They were the ones who brought defeat on other people. And so this is really strange. And so when the people come back from this defeat, this battle, they, they ask God, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today? And my guess is that you've probably asked that same question before, just like I have. When things don't go our way, we want to know why God didn't do what we wanted. But I got to tell you, that's completely the wrong question to ask when you actually want to get to a useful answer. And so in every aspect of your life, from this day forward, I would encourage you not to ask why anymore. Why did God do this? Why didn't this other thing happen? Why gets us nowhere? Because the answer is usually, I don't know. Why did God bring this defeat on us? I don't know. Why did I lose my job? I don't know. Why did that happen? I don't know. That's clearly the answer the Israelites settled on. And since they didn't know the reason that God brought this defeat on them, they just tried something else. Like they just moved to the next thing, which proves to be even worse for them. The why question usually gets us unhelpful answers. In fact, when you ask the why question, usually the answers go something like this. The answers are like, well, I'm sinful. Why did this happen? Well, I'm stupid. Why did this happen? Well, I don't know what I'm doing. Why did this happen? Well, God hates me or I'm worthless. Why is a terrible question to ask when you're actually trying to get to an answer. And so the next time you have a question for God, try asking a what question. What led to this outcome? What am I doing that might cause God to feel the need to discipline me? What could I do next time that would bring a different 
outcome. See, what questions lead to action, why questions lead to accusations. And usually, Satan works it so those why questions are accusations against us. That's not what this message is about. That's just helpful information for you and me. Because Israel asked the wrong question. They came to the wrong conclusion. And they decided that that bringing the ark, which represented God's presence among the people, bringing the ark into their camp and the battle might help them win. And it did muster the troops. Like, Like they had a party. It was fantastic. They bring the ark in and they partied so loudly when the ark showed up that they actually scared the Philistines. The Philistines had had heard about the God who brought Israel out of slavery, who destroyed the nation of Israel or, or Egypt almost to the point of no return and wiped out their military. Like they had heard of the stories of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, of driving out the nations before them. They knew about the God of Israel. But here's what the Philistines and the Israelites were about to learn. God's presence isn't found in objects, it's found in obedience. The Israelites put on a good show. When the ark came into the camp, they partied, it was great, they made a lot of noise, but it was all fake. And all of them learned that the next day. When the Philistines attacked, Israel lost big. Another 30,000 men died on the battlefield and the ark of God's presence was captured. It was a total and complete victory by the Philistines. They had not only defeated their enemies, their God had defeated the God. But they were about to learn another lesson. That you won't find God in objects, statements, or sentiments. He will only be found through obedience. So the Israelites asked this question when they lose the battle. Why did God bring defeat on us? And their answer was, I don't know. Let's try something else. Let's bring out the ark like in the old days. And Israelites did exactly what we still do. We want God to change our circumstances without having to change our conduct. You think that's what the Israelites were doing? The Israelites, instead of saying, God, what have we done that has caused this defeat? They just said, God, change our circumstance. We're going to go about life the same way. We just want you to give us victory. And I think a lot of times that's what we do in our lives. Things are going horribly wrong and we're suffering one defeat after another. And we go, we go God, why are you so upset with me? And we go, I don't know. And so we keep doing the same thing over and over again, and we're asking God to bless us in the middle of our chaos. Go, God, show up, change my circumstances, fix my finances, restore my marriage. I just don't want to do anything to change my situation. And so we want God to to fix our circumstances without having to change our conduct. And I think we've probably all done that. Listen, God's not going to restore your marriage if you're keeping a mistress. He just isn't going to do that. God's not going to provide for you financially if you're not honoring Him first. God's not going to get you out of this mess if you're not willing to stop putting yourself into that mess. 
God's not a good luck charm that we rub to get out of a tough spot. And what the Israelites learned was that the ark's presence among them was no substitute for their lack of repentance. And so just bringing this object into the camp and then trusting that God was going to change their circumstances somehow, some magic way God was going to do this, they found out that, that without repentance, God's not going to show up. Victory in any and every aspect of our lives doesn't come through an object. It comes from God. We've got to stop relying in our lives and in our nation. We've got to stop relying on the, on the in God we trust line on our dollars and start asking if we actually trust God enough to obey Him. Am I actually doing the things that God tells me to do? And let me sum up what happens in the rest of the story. The Philistines are like incredibly happy. They've killed 34,000 of the Israelite fighting men and they've taken the ark. They are ecstatic. And they go back to Philistia and they're going to add the ark of, of the covenant, the ark of God, to their own God's temple. And, and so they'll kind of have more gods and it'll make them more powerful. That's how they believed back in those days. But God's presence was with the ark. He just wasn't going to be manipulated by the Israelites. And so the whole time the ark was in the land of Philistia, God did incredibly terrible things to the people. And it's a great story if you want to go to 1 Samuel in the Old Testament and read uh, like chapters um, 5, 6, and 7. Uh, you can read about this story. But what happens is the Philistines bring the ark back. They put it into the temple of their god, Dagon. And the next morning they get up. And they go to the temple and they find that the god Dagon that they had, they had constructed, this huge, uh, this huge cement and stone structure that they had built, had fallen over and was laying face down in front of the ark of God's presence. So they kind of freaked out and so they, they stood it back up, which I'm sure was a big task because this was a big statue. And they stood it back up in the temple. And the next day when they went back to their temple of Dagon, they found that the, the idol this time had been broken probably around the knees, had fallen off of its stand, and its head and its hands had broken off and were laying on the threshold of the temple. So they didn't put the ark of God back in the temple. They took it out and they brought it to a city. And, and what happened in three different cities of the Philistines, wherever the ark of God's presence was, many of the people died and those who didn't die were covered in tumors all over their body. In fact, the Philistines got so afraid of this ark of God's presence that they finally decided to send it back to Israel and not without tribute. They loaded a wagon with gold and sent the ark of God's presence back to Israel with a great big apology for taking it. Victory for the Israelites and for you and me doesn't come from an object. It comes from the Lord. It comes when we humbly repent of our sin and seek God first. Now you may be going through a challenging time in your life right now. I want you to know that, that carrying a Bible around with no intention of opening it or doing what it says or wearing a cross around your neck won't help you. 
Victory in your life will only come when you seek God first. When you take your chaos to God. When you ask Him to help you change your conduct so that your circumstances might then change. He wants you to be free from your enemies that control you and confine you. But He's not an object to be wielded for your benefit. He's a God to be worshipped. Look at what happens in the end of this battle story. In chapter 7, the people cry out to Samuel. Now, by this time, uh, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were the priests. They went into battle with the Ark of the Covenant, and they're dead now. And when the people come back and they tell Eli what happened, that the Ark was captured and that his two sons die, he falls off his chair and he breaks his neck and he's dead. Samuel is the only one left. And so Samuel goes first to ask God what they could do. And God responds pretty simply. He says, you have to obey. And so Samuel relays God's message to the people. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, here's what it says. Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs and, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Notice in this verse how the people's obedience will be evidenced of their, by their changed conduct. So he says, put God first in your life and then change your conduct. And when their conduct changed and they began to seek God first, He delivered them. In fact, in the story in chapter 7, the Israelite people are there before God and Samuel says, repent and follow God, change your conduct so that He'll change your circumstances. And the Philistines hear about this and they come to do battle and Israel gets ready and they completely rout the Philistines this time. They killed thousands of them and there was peace between Israel and Philistia for many years. Look, God will not be mocked. If we turn to Him, He will deliver us. God is perfectly capable of taking care of Himself. He didn't need the Israelites to fight for Him. He did pretty well on His own. But the Israelites absolutely needed God, and so do we. If we want God's presence... We can't fake it. We'll only find God's presence through faithful obedience. And when we repent and seek Him, He will fight our battles. He will defeat our enemies. He will enlarge our territory. He will provide. He will protect. He will be present among us. And that's what we really need. Let's pray. God, I thank You for being with us and being present among us. I pray, God, that we would be a people who would seek your presence, not through objects of worship, but through obedience. That, that we would read, that we would understand, that we would then begin to, to, through your Holy Spirit, change our conduct so that you change our circumstances. And God, we can't fake your presence. But when we come to you, we come to you in repentance, when we change our conducts, you will deliver us. And we thank you for that and look forward to it. 
In Jesus' name, amen.